Welcome to the Olivet Discourse Seminar. I, uh, I'm really excited about this, this seminar, and even though we're going to be going for this for a little while tonight, my prayer is that it's worth your time. That's my prayer, is that um, the fruit of this is going to be um, that your hearts are, are, are more prepared for what's coming we're going to go through some things in a lot of detail. And the reason we're going to do that is because I feel like on these particular issues, they're extremely important. These are not just fairy tales that Jesus included for, you know, to kind of entertain our prophetic imagination a little bit. He really wants us to, be, to brace ourselves and be, be watchful in light of what's coming. And so my prayer is that the, the content will be... Uh, Interesting enough to hold our attention, all including myself. I stayed up till 3 a.m. last night working on my notes and just finished them at 5 this afternoon. And, you know, I, I don't want to exaggerate, but I do want to say with sincerity that this is, um, this is one of the more important teachings I feel like the Lord's put on my heart for a while. And, um, and you know, all of us have... We're all, all continually growing in our understanding. And I would say that uh, probably of all the passages of Scripture that the Lord has brought me back to over the last several, several years, actually, the ones that we're going to go through tonight are probably the ones that I've spent the most time in. Lots of chewing, lots of praying, lots of frustration. Oh, you know, I can't throw the Bible. It's the Holy Bible. But what does this mean? You know, kind of like... <laughs> That, that kind of struggle and wrestling. And so that I, I say that not because I, I, I don't have, I, by any means, anywhere complete understanding. I don't want to any, in any way give that impression. But I do, uh, I take it very, this topic very seriously, you know. And I, uh, I, as we're going through this, the Lord has really adjusted my thinking on a number of things as I've revisited this over the years. And there's a few of my own sacred cows that he's kind of <laughs> kind of destroyed. And so we're going to hit some of those. And I, I want you guys to know that I, I, my desire is for you to take this and chew on it, tear it to pieces, go home, disagree with it, say this is the worst thing I've ever listened to in my life. I never want to see this again. I'm never coming to another ERG. If you feel, you know, whatever. <laughs> no, don't go that far, but. I want to see you guys back. I like you guys, you know, but, but the, the point is that I really want you to test the scriptures. Let's be Bereans on this. And at the end of the day, no matter what stream we've come from, no matter what I, you know, ideas or, or interpretations we've seen, we really, all of us, I, I would say, our desire is truth. That's, and that's, that's the desire of my heart. And I know that's the desire of your hearts. And so that's what I would say. Take this test it, and ask the Holy Spirit for truth. Anything that is not truth, we're asking him to strip it away. We're asking him to strip it away because this is not, this is no, the time in history that we're living in, it's no longer about who's right or wrong. It's no longer about just, you know, well, um, I don't really, I'm not really going to pay attention to these passages because nobody can really understand them. That's a lot of the ways, a lot of the ways, uh, that a lot of the time that's the way we treat these kinds of passages, and I, I think uh, that Jesus is calling forth the people that give attentiveness and careful attention to detail 
because he wants us to be prepared. Sound good? All right, let's pray. Father of glory, we pray in the name of Jesus for grace and for strength. Lord, I ask you in Jesus' name to come and give us insight and clarity. God, we want truth. I ask you, Jesus, to lead us and guide us in truth. Jesus, you promised that your spirit would guide us into all truth. Father, we know that our hearts are deceitful above all things, but we commit our hearts to you right now, and we trust your power to guide us in right understanding of the word of God more than our ability to deceive it or distort it because of our own sinfulness. God, I ask you to shield us from the evil one tonight. Shield us from the evil one. Give us clarity. God, we pray that tonight as we work through this, that we will have clarity for the sake of our children, for the sake of our family and our friends, for the sake of our prayers. Father, in the name of Jesus, I ask you for the Holy Spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Jesus, in the knowledge of his ways, in the knowledge of his heart, in the knowledge of his teachings tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, the first part of the seminar is just going to be background. One of the things that, if, if we're not familiar with a lot of the Old Testament passages that Jesus is drawing from, then it's in the, in the Olivet Discourse, it's going to be really hard, obviously, to understand what he means. Rabbis... Jesus is, who, who would agree that Jesus is a good rabbi? Obviously, we agree on that. A lot of times, when Jesus is talking with his disciples, he's talking to them and he's giving them shorthand references to passages that they're very familiar with in the Old Testament. And those passages, they knew what they meant in their original context. And so they brought the whole context and the whole idea into uh into the discussion when Jesus said that, said some of those allusions to a, a, a Bible verse. Like, for example, when Jesus is on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where does that come from? Yeah, it comes from Psalm 22. Jesus, I don't think they had Psalm 22 at the top of their, their Psalms. They, they would quote the first line of the Psalm. Oh, they have, he has Psalm 22 in his mind. Psalm 22 says a lot more than just, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? By the end of the psalm, Jesus is vindicated in ruling the nations of the earth. And so he says that, definitely entering into the agony of it, but he also is saying that mixed with faith. I know the end of Psalm 22 as well, okay? And so that's an example of how you hear all kinds of theologies created out of that one little verse, but they don't actually look at the original context of that verse. So we're going to work through background to the Alpha Discourse so that we, by the time we get to Matthew 24 and the parallel passages in the Synoptic Gospels, we can immediately if, if, put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples and say, if I hear Jesus say this, what thoughts come to my mind? What passages of Scripture? What ideas? And then we let that develop our picture. I, I want to... We're going to paint a pi- my desire tonight. My goal is to paint a picture. The picture, it, it, it may not necessarily look exactly the same as other pictures you've heard of these passages. And it doesn't look the same as the picture that was in my mind a few years back and then a couple years later than that. 
the picture continues to develop. I want to present the picture that's developing in my mind. You test it out. And then as the events unfold, if I turn out to be, you know, oh, that was completely off, that's okay. But at least you had the other, the alternative picture in your mind in case it goes that way and you're not, you're not taken by surprise. Oh, this, you know, I had these three different, these three different paintings in my mind and it's turning out to be a little more like this one. That's okay. It's, it's, that's, that's a, that's a part of being prepared. You know, it's like going into to Minneapolis and you have a, a map of different parts of the city. You have, you see what I'm saying? It, it, different kinds of maps are going to help you navigate through the city. So let's, uh, <clears throat> we're going to start uh, again, ni- Psalm 19. This is, this, this series is also the, the completion of the, the gospel in the star series. Who, who, have, who was here for those? Okay, so most of you have a little bit of a grid for that, okay. So we're going to be talking about that, uh, bre- integrating that in here. This is the last uh, in that series because in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus talks about signs in the heavens that he wants his people to be looking for at the end of the age. And he wants us to have clarity about what some of those might be so that when he's trying to communicate to us through them, we know what he's trying to communicate and when he's trying to communicate it. And we, and we heed the message he's giving us. This, it's one thing to talk about King David sitting in the hills of Judea doing Psalm 19. It's another thing to talk about um, signs that have happened in the past. But we're in a generation where there are things that are still ahead that Jesus wants us to be looking out for. So the heavens declare the glory of God. They pour forth speech, their words to the ends of the world. Nothing hidden from its heat, uh, from the the heat of the sun. Uh, Everybody sees the sun, the moon, and the stars. I'm not going to go into that uh, a whole lot. I encourage you uh, to go for more commentary on Psalm 19 to, to go to the other teachings. But let's go to point B. Some of the most dramatic signs in the heavens will be observed at the end of the age. Quoting from Joel 2 here, down in verse 30. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire, billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And we're going to look at some of these things in more detail in part two. But again, just to to reiterate, some of the more dramatic signs in the heavens still await us. And God's going to be shouting something to us. And we want to have clarity what he's shouting to us. It's important to him. And it's going to be important to us as well. <clears throat> Let's look uh, at, the, at the Pharisees here. Um, the Pharisees uh, and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. He replied, When evening comes, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a miraculous sign. And what he means here is a sign from the heavens. And the reason uh, he's saying this, well, let's keep going. He's talking about signs from heaven, and most of the time, in the Old Testament, signs from the heavens are associated with the day of the Lord. Okay? They're mostly associated with the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord being the time when God comes to punish the wicked. He's restrained and restrained and restrained. And then finally the time comes, he says, okay, the window of mercy is over. 
Now I'm going to release my wrath and my judgments. Most of those great signs, a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them have to do with that time of wrath, as we'll see. And so Jesus is saying, in, my, in this generation, I came to suffer and die. And you're asking me for the day of the Lord. You're asking for these miraculous signs from the heavens. But no sign is going to be given this generation except the sign of Jonah. Now, what's the story of Jonah? Belly of a fish for three days. It's about the mercy of God. The whole book is about the mercy of God, isn't it? The mercy of God to Jonah, the mercy of God to the Ninevites, the mercy of God of God to the cattle in Nineveh. Okay, the mercy of God. And so what Jesus is saying. You guys are asking for the day of the Lord and the judgments of God to come as if you yourselves are actually going to be vindicated by God when in reality, because you're not repenting and turning to me, you're going to be the ones incurring the wrath on that day. Now let's go, uh, let's go to the, just some of the, the parallel passages there. He says, some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you, again from the heaven. No sign will be given it except the sign of the Son of Man. For as the Son of Man was in the belly of the, of the, the well for three days and three nights... Oh, excuse me. Yeah, it was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish. So the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And so the, uh, the, that was the point, was that Jesus came and was asking them to repent. He was giving them a chance to repent. But they're asking, they're asking for, uh, for signs from the heavens that would, would, would usher in uh, the day of the Lord. And so uh, one thing that's interesting about the sign of Jonah there in Jonah 2, 1 through 2, it says, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish, and he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried out from the depth of where? Of Sheol. Did Jonah die? If he did, if if. If he actually died, then he's actually comes back to life before he, the, the well spits him out. That's an interesting thing to know when Jesus is using this analogy, isn't it? But <clears throat> the point being that when the when the, the Pharisees come to test him, let's go let's go down to um, uh, uh, Luke twelve. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Things look good outwardly to men, but corruption on the inside. There's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. And what he means is in the day of the Lord, all the motives of men's hearts will be revealed. Because the Pharisees, everything looked good on the outside, but inside, full of corruption and and depravity, right? But everything outside looked good to men. At least they were trying to have a good outward impression. Or all of those motives are going to be exposed and put on display. And so that's why he's actually saying this is a wicked and adulterous generation. The Pharisees are smug in their own self-righteousness, thinking that if the day of the Lord were to come, they would be vindicated by God and delivered. When in reality, they're calling me the prince of demons and they're incurring the wrath of God on themselves. When I've actually come to offer mercy and give the sign of Jonah in this generation, but they refuse to repent. And so 
one of the things, one of the reasons this is important, first of all, is that we don't, when we talk about the signs of the day of the Lord, we need to tremble and pray that people would repent. We need to have, approach them with the opposite spirit in that sense. Uh, Amos 5, woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? You, when we all need mercy, you know, God's set the appointed times in his own authority, but uh, it's going to be a day of darkness and not light. Well, not the day of the Lord, darkness, not light, pitch dark without a ray of brightness. So one, again, we want to keep our hearts pure as we think about these things. But we also want to recognize that the Pharisees, along with many, many others in Israel, they were actually looking for what signs in the in the heavens. They were looking signs in the heavens. Those signs in the heavens being rooted in their understanding of the Old Testament. OK. And. Those signs in the heavens in the Old Testament being linked to the day of the Lord. They're looking for the Messiah to usher in the day of their generation. And we're going to see why that's significant in the Olivet Discourse, as well in some of the other passages we're going to read here in the, uh, uh, in, in the first session. Any questions so far? Pretty straightforward. So for us to understand the Olivet Discourse Seminar, we have to have a, a decent grasp of the metaphor of birth, the way it relates to the end of the age and old. Romans 8, 18 to 25. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. So the creation is groaning as in the pains of childbirth. Let's go to verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. That the creation, the creation itself, it's like it's, the creation is in labor. It's groaning, it's in pain, it's in frustration, longing for the day when it is set free from bondage to decay. Our free, the earth's freedom from its bondage to decay begins when the sons and daughters of God are revealed in the resurrection when we are no longer subject to decay because we receive our resurrected bodies. And so the entire creation longs to be brought into the glorious freedom of the sons of God, freedom from bondage to decay. That, so the whole earth is groaning for, first of all, the sons of God to be birthed in the resurrection. Jesus is the firstborn of the resurrection. We will be the second, third, fifth, you know, all borns of the resurrection when he comes back for us. He's longing, the creation's longing for the sons of God to be revealed in the resurrection. And then for those, those resurrected saints to be established in positions of authority throughout the earth to begin the process of purging it of corruption and evil and wickedness. And, and the creation is longing to be set free and, and come under righteous governance. Letter B, creation groaning for the sons of God to be birthed in the resurrection. We read that from uh, Romans 8. Let's go down to uh, <clears throat> verse 19 here in Isaiah 26. But your dead live, their bodies will rise. You who dwell in the dust, wake up. And we know that uh, sleep is a metaphor for death. That God's promise of resurrection is so sure that it's actually more like you're sleeping 
and then when you wake up, something that's that's the idea. Wake up from your sleep of death and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. And as we'll see here in just a minute, it's the dew is an, an analogy being applied to the resurrected sons and daughters of God in the resurrection. The earth will give what? Will give birth to her dead. So the earth is is wanting to the earth is in is in what right now? It's in labor, wanting to give birth to what? The sons and daughters of God, the age to come, wanting to give birth to the age to come and the kingdom of God and the and the resurrection of the saints, freedom from bondage to decay. Does that make sense? The age to come is like the baby. When Jesus comes back, we're all coming up from the grave and the baby is born. Okay. So. uh, Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead. He came up from the grave ahead of the rest of his brothers and sisters in him will follow him at the in the day of the Lord. Uh, Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The father, the Lord, uh, sorry, lost my track here. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter, talking about the Messiah from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, talking about the second coming. Arrayed in holy majesty, which is resurrected glory, from the womb of the dawn, the morning driving back the night. The dawn is here, the day, the, the night is over, the dawn is here. From the womb of the dawn, from the womb of the morning, your young men will come to you like the dew. That's the NIV note. Uh, you will receive the dew of your youth. I really, I prefer the NIV note there. Because what, he, what he's saying there is in the same way that when the morning dawns and there's vapor, You start off with vapor, and the vapor rises, and it condenses into something solid, doesn't it? Just like our our spirits will be joined to our bodies. And when the sun comes over the dew in the morning, it shines. Okay? And so he's using it as a metaphor for the resurrection. And that when Jesus comes back, he's going to give us like the dew to himself. You know, when you look out at a field with lots of dew, you can't even count all the little you know, um, particles or droplets of dew, yeah. And so, does this make sense? Okay. And this is all, again, uh, based in the Old Testament. The land groaning for its rightful inheritors. Let's go to, um, oh yeah, Daniel twelve thirteen. Daniel's just told that, Daniel, you're gonna, you know, us, the sons of God, who do, who does the father give his inheritance to? His sons and his daughters, his children, right? And so when the sons of God are revealed, Jesus shares the inheritance with the other sons, the earth. Okay? So Daniel's going to rise at the end of the days, end of days to receive his allotted inheritance. <clears throat> verse 8, uh, Isaiah 49, verse 8. This is what the Lord says, In the time of my favor I will answer you. He's talking to the Messiah there actually based on verse 7. And in the day of salvation, I will help you. I will help you, the Messiah. I will keep you, the Messiah, and make you to be a covenant for the people to restore the land and to reassign its desolate inheritances to people like Daniel, David, Joshua. They all, all of us, we all have an inheritance on this earth that God's going to give us that's going to be assigned to us when Jesus comes back. To say to the captives, the captives in Sheol, come out, come out, Lazarus. 
he's, I think he's drawing it from here, actually. Come out as a sign of the day when he actually says to all of us, come out from the grave. Be free from your bondage to decay. Um, Isaiah 49, 7 through 9. Creation groaning for Zion's redemption. Let's read this. This is an amazing passage. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you and exclude you, talking about Zion here, because uh, or, uh, believers here, because of my name, have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. Yet they will be put to shame. Hear that uproar from the city. Hear that noise from the temple. It is the sound of the Lord repaying his enemies all they deserve. So this is the second coming. <laughs> this is when God repays his enemies. And before she goes into labor, she gives birth. This is talking about Zion giving birth. Before the pains come upon her, she delivers a son. So there's a sudden birth. Who has ever heard of such a thing? Who has ever seen such things? Can a country or a nation be born in a day or be brought forth in a moment? Yet no sooner is Zion in labor than she gives birth to her children. So what he's saying there is when the Messiah comes back, the resurrection occurs and all of her sons are raised at the same time. And suddenly a nation is in an instant repopulated with those who are worthy of inheriting it. Does that make sense? Can a nation be born in a day? Yes. The Messiah comes back. The dead are raised. And those who are still living when he returns are also gathered with them. And suddenly Daniel and David and Abraham all have the resurrected bodies and they're getting their land within one one moment. Can a nation be born in a day in an instant? No, you know, so it's when the when the time for birthing comes, it happens. Boom. So creation is groaning for Zion's redemption. Let's go down to uh, Matthew or Isaiah 24. Isaiah 24. Isaiah 24 is one of the most terrifying passages in the entire Bible, and we're going to read it. We're not going to avoid it. (laughs) Let's read it. Increase shaking until the age to come is finally birthed at the second coming. And this is, I tell you what, this picture of birth pains, I I watched my wife give birth to three children, and she shakes, especially when the baby's about to come out. Women, you know, those mamas, they're working hard, they're working hard, they're working hard, and then at the very end, they're shaking. Earth is literally going to be shaking. Earthquakes, all kinds of stuff like that. Let's read it from Isaiah 24. See, the Lord is going to lay waste the earth and devastate it. He will ruin its face and scatter its inhabitants. There'll be a refugee situation in the days that are coming. It will be the same for priests as for people, for master as for servant, for mistress as for maid, for seller as for buyer, for borrower as for lender, for debtor and as for creditor. Nobody gets out of this. No nation, no socioeconomic class escapes what's coming. We all have to face it. Oh, I'm just making a connection here, but I can't include it in the notes yet. Sorry. I can't. Okay. The earth will be completely laid waste and totally plundered. The Lord has spoken this word. The earth dries up and withers. The world languishes and withers. The exalted of the earth languish. The earth is defiled by its people. They have disobeyed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse consumes the earth. Its people must bear their guilt. Therefore, the earth's inhabitants are burned up and very few are left. Let's let these words sink in. Very few are left. Verse 7. The new wine dries up. The wine, the, the vine withers. Actually, let's get, I want to I skip down to uh, 
to uh, verse 17. Let's go down to verse 17. Terror and pit and snare await you, O people of the earth. Whoever flees at the sound of terror will fall into a pit. Whoever climbs out of the pit will be caught in a snare. You can't escape God. <laughs> okay? You don't escape judgments by continuing. We don't escape it by persisting in our sin and then just trying to run away. We have to turn to him in repentance and get on his side. The floodgates of the heavens are opened. The foundations of the earth shake. This is called earthquakes, people. Verse 19, the earth is broken up. The earth is split asunder. The earth is thoroughly shaken. Fully shaken, thoroughly, comprehensively shaken. The earth reels like a drunkard. How many of you seen a drunkard reeling back and forth, stumbling and staggering like this with the bottle in their hand? The earth is going to be like that. What's happening to me? Where am I? You know, where's my ID? (laughs) Whatever, you know, just staggering, confused. The earth is broken up. The earth split asunder. The earth is thoroughly shaken. Verse 20, the earth reels like a drunkard. It sways like a hut in the wind. All these tornadoes that are happening right now. So heavy upon it is the guilt of its rebellion that it falls never to rise again. And what it means is in rebellion against the Lord. In that day, the Lord will punish the powers in the heavens above. So this is where it's going. That this Isaiah 24, it's talking about the birth pains progressively increasing until the day when he comes to do verse 22 they will be herded to, uh, in that, or verse 21, in that day the Lord will punish the powers in the heavens above. This is talking about the rebellious cosmic powers and principalities led by Satan and the kings on the earth below. Who was here for the sons of God teaching? The sons of God, are the, the, the nations voluntarily gave themselves in idolatry and worship to the fallen sons of God. Remember that? Well, because of that agreement, judgment is coming on both of them. They will be herded together like prisoners and bound in a dungeon. They'll be shut up in prison. We learn from Revelation 20, talking about the abyss there. They'll be punished after many days. Verse 23, the moon will be abashed, the sun ashamed, for the Lord Almighty will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before its elders gloriously. Now, what's interesting is at the time uh, Jesus was raised from the dead, what was there? There was a massive, there was a big what? Earthquake. So it's interesting how this picture of the sons and daughters, this picture of, of birth, the, mo- the, the, the mother is shaking, 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 and the baby comes forth. And now the earth is going to literally be shaking, shaking with earthquakes. And then just as Jesus as the first fruits, there was an earthquake and the rocks, you know, the earth was shaking and he comes up from the grave. At the end of the age, it says there's going to be by the, t- the time that our re- the resurrection comes in the context of the second coming, it says there's going to be an earthquake unlike anything the world has ever known. So the sons and daughters of God are going to be coming up from the grave in the resurrection in context to that earthquake. And the earth is birthing our sons and daughters from the dead. Isn't that an amazing picture? It's amazing. Let's, let's go down to Revelation uh, 16, 17 through 18, verse 18. The seventh angel, that's a clue that this is the second coming. It's the completion here. Poured out his bowl into the air. They say, it's done. Then verse 18, there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. Somebody read that for us. 
No earthquake like it. I just want to see who's awake. No earthquake like it exact has ever occurred since man has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. So let's talk more about the coming shaking of the rebellious cosmic powers. The coming shaking and purging of the heavens and the earth. This is what the Lord Almighty says. This is from Haggai. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations and the desire of the nations. The Messiah will come and I will fill this house with glory. Now, I want to put in your mind what he means by this. The shaking of the heavens and the earth. A lot of times I hear people talking about this. And I'm, I'm not sure exactly what they mean by it. He's going to shake everything that can be shaken. What he, he's drawing on here, he's drawing here on an analogy, an agricultural analogy, actually. And we learned that from several passages that we're going to see here in a minute. Of a sieve. How many of you know what a sieve is? Okay. Back in the old days, that's what we talk in our, with, when I'm talking with my children, we talk about the old days when we're talking about the past. Back in the old days in Israel... When they would bring in the wheat, there were basically three phases that I know of. I think there were with some, sometimes there, there may have been more phases, but three basic phases to harvesting the wheat. The threshing. They bring in grain, and they take these threshing things, and they begin to beat the grain. Okay? They beat it. And what it does is by beating on the grain, the kernels, it separates the chaff from the actual kernel of grain. It separates it. The next phase is the winnowing. Then they, take, they go up to a, a place where it, there's a little wind. They'll take a winnowing fork, put the, the grain in the winnowing fork, and begin to shake it and toss it up in the air. And because the, the chaff had been separated from the grain by the, by the hard pounding and threshing, when they toss it up into the air, the wind would come and blow away the chaff, but the grain was heavy enough that it would... The, but the chaff was blown away. The third phase was, was the sifting. It was the sieve. They would take the grain, and sometimes it would be mixed with, be mixed with rocks. There'd be still pebbles in it, rocks and sand, or mo- mostly rocks and pebbles. Like that, and they would put the grain into the sieve, and they would shake it. And the the the. Uh, the things that were being shaken were the rocks and the things that they didn't want in the grain. But the parts that, the, the grain itself came through the sieve and remained. But the parts that were, the parts that were shaken, the, the, like the rocks and all of the debris that they didn't want mixed in with the grain, it kept being shaken because it didn't go through the sieve. So they would take it and then they would toss it. And so it's a picture of purging. It's a picture of separation. It's not a picture of destruction and annihilation. That's the whole point of that. As I always come back to, the earth is not going to be annihilated. It's going to be purged of evil. It's not going to be destroyed. Does that make sense? Okay, and so, um, so verse Isaiah 30, 28. He, he, his breath is like a rushing torrent rising up to the neck. He shakes the nations in the sieve of destruction. Places in the jaws of the peoples a bit that leads them astray. For I give the command, I'll shake the house of Israel among the nations as grain is shaken in the sieve. All, and then here's the fruit of it. All the sinners among my people will, will die by the sword. So he's taking the sieve. Repent, it's like he takes them and he 
he removes them and purges them through his judgments and tosses them out of the, of the nation, basically. It's an intense, it's, an, it's actually a pretty intense picture, but it's very concrete in your mind when you think about it like that, isn't it? And that's what he's going to do with the powers of the heavens. Up in the, up in the heavens, there's, there's powers, cosmic powers that have not rebelled against them. Those guys get to stay. Those guys remain. The other guys get shaken, and they're tossed out. And the same with the earth, the kings of the earth and the, the wicked of the earth, they get, you know, if, they don't, if we don't repent. Questions on that? Okay. <clears throat> now, if you need to stretch a little bit, we can, but um, just in your chair, because this is a little intense. We're getting ready to start some intense stuff here. Brace yourselves. Stretch. Okay. I'm going to take a drink before we get into this stuff. Anybody? Uh, I remember the story of Paul where he's talking and the guy falls out the window, thankfully. I hope none of you fall asleep. I, I, don't, I, I'm, I'm, I don't have any raising from the dead on my belt yet. I'm waiting, you know, so hopefully, yeah. I don't want tonight to be the first. Let's not test it out, but. Um, all right, let's do this. Lord, I pray for just the Holy Spirit of wisdom revelation in Jesus' name. The fallen powers to be shaken from their place in the heavens, from the heavens to the earth for time, times, and half a time. Times, times, and half a time means three and a half years. In conjunction with the rise of the Antichrist empire. Let's read Revelation 12. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. A woman, and we know from previous lessons on the gospel and the stars, this is Virgo, clothed with the sun. This means that the sun was rising in Virgo on Rosh Hashanah with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. And as we saw last month, this dragon is represented in the stars by Draco and Hydra. Verse 4, his tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. Who is this? Who's the male child? Good to see you. Yep, Jesus, clearly. Clearly, this is Jesus. I think the represents the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. That's what we. Okay, we we can talk about that maybe later. Um, and we talked about it some in the last couple of sessions. If you have a chance to listen to those sometime, um, that might be helpful. But this is uh, verse five. She gave birth to a son, a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. This is an allusion to Psalm 2, which is, this is clearly the Messiah. And her child was snatched up to God into his throne to sit at the right hand of the father. And the woman, and I have, I have a, a lot of reasons why I think this. I can't develop it in, in too much detail uh, here. But I, based on Isaiah 54 and a number of other passengers, passage, passengers, passages, I need a drink here. Drink. 
based on a number of other passages. I think Zion, the woman represents Zion and by extension Israel. And my opinion is that the woman is Jews in Jerusalem who have not yet become believers, but who, but who have been marked or set apart because they, they still lament what is happening in Israel at the, the time of the end. So I have, you can, if you want to see more, I encourage you to read Ezekiel 9, look at Revelation 7. I think I, I, I was thinking kind of like Cornelius, you know, Cornelius, God knew his heart, even though he was still ignorant of the gospel. And, uh, but, but God sent him to Peter and Peter spoke the gospel to him. And if you read uh, Acts, uh, Acts chapter, where is it? eleven fourteen, clearly Cornelius was not saved until Peter preached the gospel to him. See that situation? It's, it's a good example of God's looking at a man's heart and we wouldn't necessarily fully say that he's in the category of saved, but he's on the, <laughs> he's on the way. God knows that he's in the right direction. See what I'm saying? God has God in his economy and all of that. Um, he, he works all of that out, but that's that's my opinion. So take it or leave it. Uh, but the reason I think that is we're going to look at a passage here and and based on Isaiah 35 and and you'll see why I lean that way. So this woman flees to the desert, the other, some other translations say wilderness, to a place prepared for her by God. So God's prepared a place for her ahead of time where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. That's three and a half years, times, times, and half a time. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. And what it means is he knows he only has three and a half years before he's thrown into the abyss. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman. He came after, he came after Jerusalem. Okay, And there's lots of passages that talk about the Antichrist gathering his armies around Jerusalem to destroy her. <clears throat> Who had given birth to the male child. The woman... Again, I, the remnant, I believe the remnant being preserved by God was given two wings of an eagle. And this is a clear allusion back to the Exodus where, where Israel was carried and protected by God as on, as on eagle's wings. Remember that? So he's saying, I'm going to do what I, the way I brought you guys safely out of Egypt during the Exodus. I'm going to do that again. I'm going to protect you. Okay? With my power. So that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert or in the wilderness. Where she would be taken care of for times, times and half a time. Out of the serpent's reach. And this, what I believe this means is the serpent is, he's exercising control over the Antichrist empire. So what this means is 
They're fleeing to places of refuge outside the geographical stronghold of the Antichrist empire. Okay, because if they were inside the empire, they'd be within his immediate reach. So the anti the Satan is using the Antichrist armies to try to accomplish this. Then from his mouth, the 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 serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away. Uh, ESV says to sweep her away with the flood. I believe this is a picture of it's a apocalyptic language just for the the Gentile armies of the Antichrist because in the Old Testament. The Gentile nations that come against Israel, when they come against, they're, they're likened often to a flood. That the, these armies come in, just like in the same way that a flood comes in and destroys everything. So these armies come in like a flood. So what I think he's saying here is that the devil, when he's cast down from the, the earth, we know he's going to be in, working with the Antichrist empire. And he's going to send those armies after the, the woman who's fleeing. And she's going to flee to a place that's outside of his immediate the stronghold of the empire there. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. That's Raise your hand if you're in that category. That's us. <laughs> All right. So the woman flees to the desert, and, uh, and then he comes for us. Now, this is important. And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. This is clearly the Antichrist and his empire uh, of the, made up of Gentile nations. He had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on his horns, and each head had a blasphemous name. It's not coincidence that the description of the Antichrist matches the description of Satan, both in terms of the number of heads, horns, because they're working together. They're working together, and Satan is using the Antichrist empire to try to uh, execute his rage against the earth because he's cast out of the heavens. So take note here. That Michael, the, the, the important point I want to, to draw out here is Michael the war against the powers in the heavens and cast into the earth when? Beginning three years. That's very clear from this passage, isn't it? He's cast out at the beginning of the last three and a half years. He's confined where? Where's the devil confined? To the earth. He's confined to the earth. And he tries to take out his rage on the woman. She flees to the desert, and then he takes out his rage on the saints. So you have three things happening together. You have, or here we see that the, you have Satan is cast out of the heavens to the earth in conjunction with the rise of the Antichrist. They happen at the same time. We have to keep that in mind. Now, the background for Revelation 12 is Isaiah 34 and 35. We're gonna, let's work through this together. And we're working through this together because Jesus draws on, 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 these, uh, on Isaiah 34 in the Olivet Discourse. And we want to make sure we have clarity about what he's saying based in its Old Testament context. Job, let's start here just for a, a reference here. Job 38, 1 through 7. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you... You make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. So he's talking about here the time when the earth was created. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know, or who stretched the line upon it? On what word's base is sunk, or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Again, I, ref I want to refer you to the sons of God teaching. It's the mystery of Christ 
series that we did, part five, I believe, right? I think it's part five. If you want to go into depth and detail on this. But here we have a picture in Job. What he's saying here is that he's in the process of laying the foundations of the earth, creating the earth. And there's some beings that are already in existence that he's already created before he's created the earth who are watching him create the earth. In Hebrew poetry, you have something called parallelism. When you have a line of poetry, the second line interprets and gives meaning and definition and clarity to the line preceding it. That's why if you read a number of translations, they'll, they'll stagger the poetry so that you can have a clue so that you, so that you know which line is reinforcing or reiterating the line that was right before it. Well, based on that, because of the, the format of the notes, you can't see the, the, the poetry here. But when you go to, to Job in, in the Bible, it's, it's in poetic form. And when the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy, the sons of God is actually the second line reiterating, reiterating the meaning of morning stars. So the morning stars, as we talked about in that sons of God teaching, the morning stars, it's just another way of talking about these uh, it's a name for some of these fallen, the, for, for some of the, the, the power, the cosmic powers that God created before he created the earth. And they were watching him create the earth. And as we learned from that teaching, many of those powers rebelled. Not all of them did, but some of them rebelled. And I believe Satan was one of those. I believe Satan was one of those morning stars and that there were a number of others that rebelled with him and took his side. Okay. Questions about that? Yes, sir. Some of them, yep, both in Second Peter and in Jude, it talks about those that um, came down during the flood, that are that are bound down there, that are in the abyss. That whole that whole story there. Genesis six. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they. Yeah, we can't get into the whole that discussion. <laughs> um, what's that? Yeah, but I mean about the about Genesis six oh, and the okay. sons of God coming to the daughters of men and all. Of that. But, but the, I just want I, the the reason we're going into that is we need to go where we went into that before going into Isaiah thirty four is we need to have clear in our minds that this idea of a morning star and a fallen principality go together. It's a title, okay, and we're going to see why that's significant. Okay, let's go to Isaiah thirty four and thirty five. I put them together so we capture the flow because there's no chapters and verses in the obviously in the, the original text. So I want to make sure we get the whole flow here. Now think of Revelation 12 as we're reading. Come near you nations and listen. Pay attention, you peoples. Let the earth hear and all that is in it, the world and all that comes out of it. The Lord is angry with all nations. His wrath is upon all their armies. We're talking the day of the Lord here. We're talking day of the Lord. This is end of the age. He'll totally destroy them. He'll give them over to slaughter. Their slain will be thrown out. Their dead bodies will send up a stench. The mountains will be soaked with their blood. Now, let's figure out. He's going to tell us now what the, the instrument that God's using to carry out and execute his judgment against against these guys uh, that he just mentioned in verse one through three. Verse four, all the stars of the heavens. And he's referring here to the fallen sons of God or the cosmic powers of saw in revelation in revelation 24 they're going to be purged out of the heavens all the stars of the heavens will be dissolved 
Now, this is, this is important here uh, to get this picture in our mind. Hebrew here is, uh, it's makak, something like that. But it means to decay, rot, fester, or pine away. And so, as we're going to see here, he's talking about, he, he uses the analogy of figs. What he's saying here is that these fallen powers that have rebelled against God that are in the heavens, they have like, like rotten fruit on a tree. What happens when fruit gets too rotten? What happens? It falls off, doesn't it? And that's what he's saying is that there's going to come a culmination of wickedness. And these guys are getting so sinister and so rebellious. They're like rotting fruit. And the time is going to come when he's going to shake them off that tree and they're going to fall and be like, like rotting fruit. They're rotten. They're, st- they're full of stench. Does that make sense? Okay, he's going to shake them because they're full of stench. They're rotting. They'll, so the, uh, all the stars of the heavens, they will rot. They'll pine away. They shall rot away, as the NRSV says. So the fallen powers have become like rotten figs and like rotten fruit that falls from a tree. They cannot hold their place in the heavens, can they? It says that they're dislodged in Revelation 12. They're cast out from their place. They don't have a place there anymore. Just, and uh, the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. Now let's, let's picture, how many of you have ever seen a picture of a Torah scroll? Okay. When they're reading it, if you guys can look at me for a second, I want to show you. When they're reading it, they... They open it, and then when they close it, they roll it back up, don't they? Okay? Now, here, the, the sense is that the sky, the heavens, are going to be rolled shut. They're going to be, you've got an open Torah scroll, and you close it shut. Okay? And the, uh, the, uh, the ERV says rolled shut. The Young's literal translation says rolled together. What I think he's saying here is that once these powers, these rotten powers, are cast to the earth, he's going to take the sky and shut up the heavens so that they can't go. They're confined to the earth. Just in the same way that you, you shut a Torah scroll and you can't, it, it's closed. That the heavens, he's going to say, okay, I'm confining you to the earth. And he ta- just, just like that, he takes the heavens and he rolls them up and shuts them so that those powers don't have access up there anymore. They're confined to the earth. Does this make sense? He rolls up the heavens like a scroll. And all the starry host, again, these, these fallen powers, they'll fall like withered leaves from the vine, like shriveled figs from the fig tree. These are rotten figs. They're being, he's getting ready to shake the heavens. And because they're so rotten, they can't hold their place there. They're cast to the earth. He shuts the heavens over them like a scroll. And they can't. They can't escape anymore. They're confined to the earth. Then he says, my sword. Remember the sword? Whose who's sword? Michael and the angels. His sword against those guys, it has drunk its fill in the heavens. Michael and the angels, they just did war against those powers, didn't they? And they cast them out. Like, uh, and now it descends in judgment on Edom. It, just, it comes now that... Those powers are now confined to the earth. Those powers are now God's instrument for executing punishment on the nations of the earth. Does this make sense? He's, his sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Their powers are cast down. And now Satan and the powers are confined to the earth. And now they're raged, they're angry, they're killing, they're destroying. And that's God's means 
of executing judgment on the earth now. My sword is drunk, it's filled in the heavens. I've purged the heavens through Michael and the angels. Now it descends in judgment on Edom. And so now we know that God is using those powers plus the, their, with the Antichrist armies uh, to punish the earth beginning at the 3.5 year mark. I don't like the NIV's translation here. It makes it sound past tense. I like, the King James says, and upon the people of my curse to judgment. Remember, we talked about the, the earth bearing its curse in Isaiah 24. Remember that? Um, the begin, or upon, upon the people I have doomed to judgment. So it's what he's saying there is I've cast them to the earth and I've set, I've set, the, I've set Edom and Edom is just representative of many nations that, that deserve what's coming. And he set them apart for destruction and he's going to use these fallen powers and their allegiance, their joint efforts with the, uh, the Antichrist empires to, to execute judgment. So let's go down to uh, the sword of the Lord is, verse 6, the sword of the Lord is bathed in blood. It's covered with fat. The Lord has a sacrifice in Basra and a great slaughter in Edom. Now, ultimately, in Isaiah 63, we learn that this culminates with Jesus himself marching through with the armies and crushing the rebels in Edom. But I believe that the, this begins, at the, th- the judgments begin at the three-point year mark, and they climax at the second coming. So now... We've got the powers are cast down. And then go to chapter 35. The desert and the parched land will be glad. Remember the woman who flees to the wilderness? The wilderness will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon. Now, what does that, what does that actually mean? Let's put it in. What if your garden looked like that? It means there's a lot of fruit, right? A lot of provision, a lot of production, that the land is, is, is providing food, and, and it's beautiful, it's lush. There's supply there, okay? And it's coming not for man. You don't have this kind of thing unless God produces it. Now, you might be tempted to think that he's talking about the age to come, the millennial kingdom, and the restoration of all things when he's restoring the earth. But as we continue reading the passage, we realize that's not the case. He's actually talking, what I believe, about a place of refuge where people are fleeing what we just read in Isaiah 34, just like we saw in Revelation 12. They're fleeing to this place, and it's under God's blessing and giving them provision because he's prepared a place for them ahead of time, hasn't he? He's prepared a place for them. <clears throat> he says, the glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They, uh, the remnant what I believe is a a, a surviving remnant that God preserves from Israel, will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Now, what is this unto? God is revealing the glory of his his glory and his splendor to them. Therefore, verse 3, strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. These people are being pursued by the Antichrist armies, and the Jewish race is being threatened with extinction here. And everybody's asking, is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob going to be true to his covenants? And whoever is in these places of refuge, these places in the wilderness, we're saying, yes, your God is coming. Be strong. Don't give up. He's coming to redeem Zion. Don't give up. Be strong. Be strong. Your God is faithful. He is your God. He's a Jewish Messiah. He is yours. He is going to come and vindicate you. Okay? So we're going to say, be strong. We're going to say, steady your knees that give way. You have a fearful heart. 
These are, I believe these are fleeing Jews. Be strong. Do not fear. Your God, he will come. He will come with vengeance. So context here is he has not come with vengeance to deliver Zion yet. The second coming hasn't happened here yet. So I believe this is actually Gentile believers in these places of refuge outside of the strongholds of the Antichrist empire, receiving Jews and encouraging them to turn to God and repent and believe because he's going to come and vindicate Zion and God is going to be releasing power through his church and on the land as a sign that this is actually happening in the name of the Jewish Messiah, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and repent. And see, let's let's see what the fruit of of this is going to be. I believe that this might actually, this, this is just me through a number of, of th- uh, things that I felt like the Lord has put on my heart. I think this area, or uh, the Midwest might be one of those. Wouldn't that be awesome? I mean, this, we could be, if we, if we were part of actually th- fulfilling this thing, that would be neat. <clears throat> he will, so, so they're proclaiming this message to them in this place. Then will the eyes of the blind, and if you look in several later passages in, in, in Isaiah, the eyes of the blind referring to, it's referring clearly to Israel. It's referring clearly to the Jewish people who are waiting for the scales to be removed from their eyes. Okay? I'll let you look up the cross references there on your own. Isaiah 42, 18 through 19, Isaiah 43, 8, for example. Then, when, all, when, when they're in these places and this message is being proclaimed to them, then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, then the lame will leap like a deer. The mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And this is, you know, just like he did at Horeb. So uh, a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. The unclean, including the Gentile armies, will not journey on it. It will be for those who walk in that way. Wicked fools, and a fool is usually somebody with no fear of God. <clears throat> That can be expressed in idol worship and all kinds of things or just uh, lots of things. But wicked fools will not go about it. No lion will be there. No ferocious beast will get up on it. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there. The ransom of the Lord will return. They'll enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. So So this preserved remnant that goes to the wilderness to be preserved from the Antichrist empires, they're going to return to Zion with singing. They're going to be saved. They're going to be saved. They're going to be provoked to jealousy in, in the midst of all of this. And the earth, we see here that the earth is actually protecting them, isn't it? It's keeping the unclean off of the path. It's giving them food. And that's what it said in Revelation 12 was going to happen. That Now, what's interesting, uh, in Egypt, there's a place in, in the middle of Egypt uh, where historically um, armies have been, they've pursued people. And suddenly, those armies, they go out and they, they can't find them. Can't find them. They're just swallowed by the desert. Isn't that interesting? I think something like that might be the case. I mean, you, I, I just picture, you know, fleeing Jews and then these Antichrist armies pursuing them. And maybe they, they're, going to, they're going to a place protected. There's angels that allow them to, to, uh, to go in there and... I'm saying actually all this because a guy had a prophetic encounter that the Lord was actually going to do this. <laughs> so, anyhow, a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, the Lord spoke to them that uh, this is the kind of. Exactly. Yeah, the water's t- overtaking Pharaoh. Exactly. 
I'm going to skip the, uh, the next verse here for now. You guys can read that on your own. I, I included that in there because uh, there's a guy I really like, a Bible teacher named Tim Warner. He makes an argument that the fifth trumpet is sound earmark because uh, at that point, the, the, the judgments shift away from uh, being against uh, being aimed at man's environment, and they're now directed on human beings themselves. They're actually allowed to begin inflicting the punishments on human beings. The focus shifts at the fifth trumpet. The fifth trumpet begins the, the three woes. And it's just interesting that at the fifth trumpet, you have an angel who is called a star cast from the sky, given a key to open up the abyss so that a bunch of demons can come out of it. Just thought that was interesting. <laughs> anyway, Mike Bickle's dream. I just want to drive this home. Mike Bickle had this dream in 2013, 2009, and it really, it's a, I think it's a prophetic confirmation of what we just read. I was speaking at a conference in a baseball park inside a large fairground. About 40,000 people were present. Many leaders and their people from many charismatic streams were present. I saw Bill Johnson. He was representative of, of other leaders in the body who seek to walk in God's power and who walk with an excellent spirit. We were enjoying warm fellowship together. I preached on prayer, God's power, and end-time judgment. I spoke at two afternoon sessions. In the break between the sessions, some were debating on what I was preaching. Some IHOP KC people debated each other, and some were speaking to believers from different ministry streams. They were debating in a friendly way about God's power and his end-time judgment. There was no hostility, but only sincere dialogue with humility and love. It was enjoyable and intellectually stimulating, but none of the different points of view stirred up real faith and conviction er, and revelation. Immediately, as I finished the second session at 5 p.m., I saw a token of a few of the events that John prophesied about in Revelation 12, 7 through 9, when war breaks out in heaven between Satan and, the, and Michael the archangel. The result is that Satan will be cast to the earth at the beginning of the tribulation. I did not see Satan, but only demonic principalities being cast to the earth. They looked like large snakes over 100 yards long and 50 feet thick. Each had a large head that looked like a dragon. Many of them were coming from the sky down to the earth because they're going to be confined to the earth. They're being cast out. They looked like large snakes. Oh, sorry, I already read that part. Everyone at the, cor at the conference was filled with panic. Most were terrified. No one, including me, had understanding or faith that was mature enough to respond in the power of confidence that I had just preached on. I ran as I felt the terror of the event. The leaders and their people felt terror. All wanted to quickly get out of there. Most were in confusion, including the IHOP KC people. These snake-like demonic principalities and demonic hosts with them were filled with rage against the people. They were angry and even humiliated about being confined to the earth. Satan's rage is related to a short amount of time before going to prison. Soot or wet, muddy, thick ash was raining down from the sky. It darkened the sky as it fell on the people who were running. I ran out of the vast fairgrounds to the park offices at the entrance. Wet ash was all over me as I ran. Many did not get out. They were bitten by the large snakes. They were evil police. There were evil policemen at the entrance. They told me, you have, you have to go back into the fairgrounds or we will put you in jail. They were calloused about the danger I would face by going back into the fairgrounds. I then understood they were in the Antichrist system. I was in a dilemma. I thought, I just escaped from the most intense danger imaginable, and now I have to go back in. There will be no natural way out of this crisis except by the power of the Spirit. 
When standing by the police, I thought, I wish IHOP would have taken the events in Revelation 12 more seriously and therefore prepared more urgently in the days when we had time. That's why we're doing this. Okay? We're going through this detail by detail, not just to, you know, do some, some of the intellectual curiosity type of thing. We want to be prepared. We want to be ready for this stuff. I said to myself, the debate about power is much bigger than the power we actually walk in. I woke up with urgency that the IHOP leadership needs greater zeal to walk in the things of the Spirit. So, tracking with me. Revelation 12. We've got a clear picture of what's happening there, don't we? The Old Testament grounding for that is Isaiah 34 through 35. We have, and then we have this prophetic word from, that's it's, it's pretty much describes the same thing and kind of a symbolic for Mike. Now, the, those powers are cast down from the heavens at the, three, the, the beginning of the last three and a half years. That happens in conjunction with the rise of the Antichrist empires. It doesn't, shouldn't surprise us that you have the, the market empire that emerges when Satan is limited to the earth. He's confined to the earth. Now, the ant, let's, let's, we have, we, let's read more about the armies. We focused on the powers that are going to be cast down. Let's focus now on the armies that are going to be working in tandem with those powers. The revealing of the Antichrist and his armies. The Antichrist armies are the rod of the Lord's discipline in the day of the Lord. Woe to the Assyrian, and clearly the Assyrian is the Antichrist. You can cross-reference that with Micah 5 as well. Keep your eye on Assyria, or in, on the land of Syria. Keep your eye on the entire Middle East in the days that are coming. <laughs> the rod of my anger, in whose hand is the club of my wrath? I send him against a godless nation. I dispatch him against the people who anger me. He's talking about, I send him against Israel to discipline them. Does the axe raise itself above him who swings it, or the saw boast against him who uses it? As if a rod were to wield him who lifts it up, or a club brandish him who is not wood. Basically, the fact that this nation is already coming against Israel to destroy her means that God has already sealed the fate of that empire because they've, they've cursed Abraham's seed. And he, who, he's going to bless those who bless Abraham and do what? Curse those who curse Abraham's seed. So the fact that he's allowing them to do this means that he's already sealed their destruction in his mind. He's just going to use them to discipline his, his people as a, with a, the rod. And then he's saying, why are you boasting? I'm just using you as my rod right now. I'm going to destroy you when I come back. That's what he's saying. Don't boast that you're the axe in my hand. So uh, letter B, the Antichrist is God's instrument for punishing Babylon the Great. Verse 1, an oracle concerning Babylon. New, New King James says, the burden against Babylon that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw. Raise a banner on a bare hilltop, shout to them, beckon to them to enter the gates of the nobles. I have commanded my holy ones. The SV says consecrated ones, and New King James, sanctified ones. He's not talking here in the sense of they're morally upright. Clearly that's not what he means. But he's just saying the word hope, they're set apart. They've been set apart to accomplish a purpose of his. And that purpose is what we just read in Isaiah 10. That purpose is the chastisement of his people. They, they're the rod that he's set apart this, these Antichrist empires as the rod of his, of, his, of his discipline. They've been set apart for that purpose. I have summoned my warriors to carry out my wrath. Those who rejoice in my triumph. 
Listen, a noise on the mountains like that of a great multitude. Listen, an uproar among the kingdoms like nations massing together. The Lord Almighty is mustering an army for war. Now, when you start reading these first few verses, you think, well, is it talking about the Antichrist armies or is it talking about maybe the, the angels at the, when Jesus returns? You read the context, it's clearly the Antichrist armies. It's, it's not the angels. It's not, it's not the second coming, the angels coming with Jesus at, at the second coming is what we're going to see here. The Lord is, Almighty is mustering an army for war. They come from far, well, let's see. Listen, a noise on the mountains like that of a great multitude. Listen, an uproar among the kingdoms like nations massing together. The Lord Almighty is mustering an army for war. So there's one example. He's mustering nations together. He's an army among the nations. He's bringing them together against his land or against, against Babylon and against his land. They come from faraway lands, from the ends of the heavens, the Lord and the weapons of his wrath. Now, either that means they come from the four heavens, meaning they just come from all over the place, or wouldn't that be crazy if he's mean, they're, they're, they're coming from these nations as well as all those powers that I've just cast out of the heavens, working together. Um, either one would probably work, but it may just be that he's talking about they're gonna, there's going to be nations from the four corners of the, uh, of the heavens, meaning from lots of places. The Lord and the weapons of his wrath to destroy the whole country. Most translations say land, referring to the land of Babylon. Well, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. So the day of the Lord, okay, it's not just confined specifically to the second coming. It climaxes at the second coming. It's going to be terrifying if you're not on Jesus' team at the second coming. That's the climax in terms of the judgment. But it begins, it actually begins before in the beginning of birth pains, but it's really intensifying here. The whole thing is, is his day. The day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Because of this, every hand will go limp, so on and so forth. Every man's heart will melt. Terror will seize them. Pain and anguish will grip them. They'll see like they'll, they'll ride like a woman in labor. They'll look aghast at each other. Their faces aflame. See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of the heavens and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. I'll punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I'll put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. Read Revelation 17 and 18, what that means, the pride of the ruthless. Okay? I will make man scarcer than pure gold, more rare than the gold of offer. That's another one of those. Did that just say that? Verse 13. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will shake from its place at the wrath of the Lord Almighty in the day of his burning anger. Now, let's go um, down to verse 17. We realize now for sure that he's using the. Uh, oh, actually, go to go to verse 16. Verse well, just verse 15. Sorry, I'm just I like it all. <laughs> Whoever is captured will be thrust through all who are caught will be will fall by the sword. Their infants will be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be looted and their wives ravished. Clearly, this is not the angels coming back at the second coming. This is a demonic antichrist empire taking over people and uh, doing bad things to babies and, and, and women. Okay, like happens in all, in all wars usually. Verse 17. See, I will stir against them the Medes, which is we know that's, that Medes refers to Persia or Iran, which is going to be a part of the antichrist empire, who do not care for silver and have no delight in gold. This is a very interesting statement in light of Shiite eschatology in Iran. Just, I'm going to put that out there as a teaser. You can go 
go research it, but Ahmedinejad has no concern about gold or silver. He just wants to usher in the Mahdi by, by catalyzing world chaos. Just very interesting. Their bows will strike down the young men. They will have no mercy on infants, nor will they look with compassion on children. Babylon, the jewel of kingdoms, the glory of the Babylonians' pride, will be overthrown like Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, with what, what fell on fire? And what, what fell on so, Sodom and Gomorrah? Fire. What fell on fire? Oh, man. It's, fire fell on Sodom and Gomorrah. So let's go to Revelation 17 now. Then the angel said to me, the waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, peoples multitudes, nations, and languages. That, that passage there, by the way, is from Isaiah 13. I don't know if I mentioned it earlier, but it's Isaiah 13. Jesus also quotes from Isaiah 13 in the Olivet Discourse. That's why we're going into this in such detail. Okay, so he quotes from Isaiah 34. We got to have clarity what he's saying there. Quotes from Isaiah 13. We're going to need clarity about what he's saying there. Okay, do you see why we're going into all of this detail on these Old Testament passages? I sure hope so. (laughs) Because you guys are being patient as we work through this. Verse, uh, Revelation 17, beginning in verse 15. Then the angel said to me, the waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. This is clearly referring to Babylon the Great. If you read Revelation 17, the, that uh, it's talking about bringing the city of Babylon to ruin. They'll hate the prostitute. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. The Antichrist and his armies are going to hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. What did we just see in Isaiah 13? The exact description of this, didn't we? Okay. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to give the beast their power to rule until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city. This is Babylon that rules over the kings of the earth. So here we have in Revelation 17, it's, it's again referring us back to passages like Isaiah 13. Babylon's destruction is not just prophesied there. It's prophesied in other places like Jeremiah 50 and 51 and a number of other uh, passages. But Isaiah uh, 13, it comes out really clear what's happening. Let us see. The Antichrist, we're going to look at some timing stuff now. The Antichrist destroys Babylon at the beginning of the last three and a half years. This is important. Three key events, therefore, happen in conjunction at this time. Number one. Satan and his fallen angels are cast out of the heavens and confined to the earth. Agreed? Are we all tracking on that? Anybody disagree with that from based on looking at the passages together? And if, you're too, if, if you don't think so, then if, if you don't agree, then if you're just too shy to say it, that's okay. Um, number two, the Antichrist or man of sin is revealed at the same time. The Antichrist and his, and his, and his armies come to power. Satan is cast out. The Antichrist is revealed. Number three, the city of Babylon the Great is destroyed by the Antichrist in fulfillment of passages like Isaiah 13 and Jeremiah 50 through 51. Those three things happen at the same time around the beginning of the three and a half year mark. Oh, we're coming to the abomination of desolation. Oh, yeah, we're coming there. We're going to look at it in detail. Because we can't understand Matthew 24 unless we're looking at that. <clears throat> so let's, uh, this, is, this is Revelation uh, 14. 
this is just showing that all these things happened at the same time. Then I saw another angel flying in midair. He had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. There's three angels that are sent out here, three messages, and these messages go together. He said in a loud voice, Fear God, give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. So you have this announcement that the final three and a half years are, are here. God's announcing it through the messenger. And let's see what happens. The second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel, so we have the fall of Babylon the great in that same time, time frame. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the, head, the hand, he too will drink the wine of God's fury. So here you have the Antichrist rising to power. And you know we're talking about the beginning of the last three and a half years here because he comes to power at that last three and a half year mark. And it's at that point that you can't take that mark. If we take that mark, people, it's not good. For, it's the lake of fire. We have to have understanding of, yes, sir. Where is it? Oh, on the forehead or on the, on the forehead? You know what? I don't know. Any thoughts? Oh, that's right. It's the same, I think, in Arabic, too. That's interesting because that reminds me of a, a friend of mine who had a dream, and in the dream, warning him to change some things in his life because he was on a, a path to take the mark of the beast. And in the end of the dream, he took the mark, and it was on his arm. It was a brand on his arm. That's interesting that you said that. So the, what, he was, what Eric was just saying was, does the, word ar- does the word hand there also mean arm? And that would be worth researching whether in Greek, whether it applies the same as like in Swahili. So there's your research project, maybe, by next time. <laughs> Look it up. Sir. Babylon the Great, who, like, who is Babylon the Great? <clears throat> the three, the big three, you know, multiple choice that I've heard that you could make a case for are the actual city of Babylon in Iraq, the city of Rome, and Mecca in Saudi Arabia. Yep, those, yeah, those, those are the, the three, and there's different arguments for all three of them. And um, obviously with Rome and Mecca, it's, be, it's your thing, Babylon the Great, mystery Babylon the Great is of the center of world idolatry, okay? If you're going for a more literal interpretation, then you've got to, it takes you to the plains of Shinar. So, so, um, so that's... <coughs> It's we got to get that in our mind that those three things happen at the beginning of the last three and a half year mark. Does that make sense? Fall of Babylon. What three things happen at the beginning of the last three and a half years? Quiz. 
angel, Satan and his angels cast out of the heavens. Antichrist comes to power. Babylon the Great falls. The city is raised. What's that? And yeah, in context of the Antichrist empires, can't take the mark of the beast once he comes to power because that's the way he's going to, with his, within his empire, that goods are going to flow. And it's interesting to see what the dynamic is with nations outside of his empire. You know, like how that's going to work, Mark and all that. But Second Thessalonians 2 and Daniel 8. It's important for us to get some clarity on this one because of, again, just background for the Olivet Discourse. <clears throat> I'm convinced that, Daniel, that Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2 is basically doing a Holy Spirit-inspired exegesis, interpretation, whatever fancy word you want to call it, of Daniel 8. Okay? Um, now, I encourage you to take this and go open to Daniel 8. We can't, do, we can't work through that uh, in too much uh, detail just tonight because of time. But Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ and, uh, or the day of the Lord has come. Verse 3, let no one deceive you by any means. For that day will not come until the falling away, or the, the Greek is apostasia. It's only used a couple times, actually, in the New Testament. It's not used very often. Uh, the, the NIV, the ESV, the NRSV say the rebellion. NASV, the apostasy, comes first. And that's, that is mentioned, actually, in Daniel 8, 12, and 13. Till the falling away comes first, and the man of sin, or the man of lawlessness, is revealed. And when you look in Daniel 8, the man of sin, this thing called the rebellion... And the revelation of the man of sin happened at the same time. Okay? <clears throat> the reason I say this is because sometimes people interpret the Olivet Discourse, they interpret the falling away there as uh, a falling away of believers. I think there's going to be a falling away, but I think that Paul is referring to Daniel 8 here. <laughs> Clearly he's referring to Daniel 8. It, and so... I just want to point that out, that Paul is drawing from Daniel 8. And we need, to, we need to follow what the apostles are drawing from themselves to define the way we understand the rebellion. And when you look at Daniel 8 and what it means by that in Daniel 8, you get a picture of what Paul has in his mind there. Questions on that? Okay, check it out. The man of sin is revealed. The son of perdition... Daniel 7, uh, 11, he's the one who's doomed to destruction. Verse 4, who opposes and exalts himself all that is called God or worshipped. You can find that right there in Daniel 8 and 11. And Daniel 8, 25. Uh, and also uh, 11, Daniel eleven thirty seven mentions that too. So that he sits in, as God in the temple of God. The NIV says, so that he sets himself up in God's temple. That uh, right there, Daniel 8, 11 and 8, 25. Showing himself that he is God. Daniel 8, 11, again. There it is. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining, the NIV says, holding him back, that he may be revealed in his own time. And Daniel 8, 17 and 19 says, talks about what that time is. It, it mentions it, actually, that he might be revealed at the appointed time of the end or the time of wrath. It's mentioned right there in Daniel 8. Verse 7, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only he who now restrains, and what he means is the one who restrains lawlessness 
because the mystery of lawlessness is that it's already at work. So he's restraining lawlessness until lawlessness is fully revealed. When is lawlessness fully revealed? The end of the age, right? When the man of lawlessness is revealed. He'll do so until he's taken out of the way. And that's what that actually means, whether it's a he that's restraining, because it could be, um, it's, it's not exactly clear who's taking, who's restraining. There's debates about that. But the thing that is being restrained is clearly lawlessness. Okay, the thing that's being restrained, even though lawlessness is at work, the fullness of lawlessness is being restrained until he's taken out of the way. And then when he's taken out of the way and the fullness of lawlessness is revealed and it talk, it's um, oh, excuse me, uh, back to verse seven. He will do so until he's taken out of the way. This is a reference to Daniel eight twenty three when he's taught when he says that in the latter times of their kingdoms. When the transgressors have reached their fullness. It's right there. It's right there in Daniel 8.23. And then, and then again in Daniel 8.23, which means in the latter time of their kingdom, it's spelled out clearly, the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Daniel 8.25 mentions that he'll be destroyed not by human hands. Uh, the coming of the lawless one is according with the work of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. Paul also is just he's drawing out something also in Daniel eight in Daniel eight twelve, or in Daniel eight twenty three. It says that the Antichrist is going to do is he's going to understand shida, okay? It's just a Hebrew word which means cryptic sayings or dark sayings, hidden sayings, enigmas, riddles, and secrets. Okay, now what's interesting is that in Numbers twelve eight, God says that that's how He speaks to His prophets is through is through. Uh, through Shiddah. He says, I speak to them in riddles through dreams and visions. And so what he's so what he's saying here is that the Antichrist, he's going to come into power in accordance with witchcraft and false prophecy. Does that make sense? He's going to do those things. And, th- and then if you want to look at Revelation 224, the Lord rebukes Jezebel for her so-called deep secrets, Satan's so-called deep secrets and her enigmas or his so-called enigmas and so on and so forth. And then the, the false prophet, of course, in Revelation 13, verse chapter and uh, verse 10. He will come with all unrighteous deception. And Daniel 8, 25, he will cause deceit to prosper among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth. Daniel 8, 12, truth was thrown to the ground that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. Now, this, ver- this word, the lie, found in one place, this phrase, the lie, it's found in Isaiah 28:15. And if you look in Isaiah 28:15, it's where Israel is taking refuge in a covenant of death, thinking that their lives as nations are going to be preserved by entering into a covenant with death, and God says I'm going to annul it. I'm going to annul it. So they've apparently made some pact with the antichrist or something that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but have pleasure in unrighteousness. So Second Thessalonians two, Paul as a as a great interpreter of the the Old Testament, obviously, he's drawing from primarily from Daniel eight, in Second Thessalonians two. The reason I'm saying that is that some of the things that Jesus says in the Olivet discourse, and some of the things Paul says in Second Thessalonians two, sometimes we read into those things when they're actually sometimes drawing from different passages in the Old Testament. So we have to have clarity on this. Does this make sense? Why are we going into this in detail? 
We want to understand what the, what the master is saying. We want to understand what Paul is saying. We want to know where are they getting this from? Where's the Old Testament precedent for this? <clears throat> so we'll, um, okay, before we get, to, I want to finish this point, then we'll take a break before we get into Luke 17. The revelation of Jesus encompasses not only on the day of the Lord, in other words, not only the second coming, the climax, but also the intense events leading up to it, especially the last 3.5 years, the Great Tribulation. Here I'm going to use, I'm going to use a translation by a Bible teacher. I, I, I mentioned him already, Tim Warner. I've got the website there if you want to look at it. It's a really good translation with lots of notes and stuff. Here's his translation of it. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, to show his servants what is required to take place with suddenness. Now look at, look at his note in, in numbers down below. He says, this prepositional phrase literally means within a very short space of time. Nothing in this phrase requires that the beginning of this time frame is close, only that the events themselves will occur within a short block of time when they begin to occur. Isn't that interesting? That's why I included his translation here because he goes with a very literal rendering there. He communicated it by sending it to his, by his messenger to the servant John. Now look at, uh, um, back at verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave, gave him to show his servants what is required to take place with suddenness. Um, it, it's commentary in, in letter A there. The revelation of Jesus Christ is more than just the second coming. It includes the whole end time sequence of events as the rest of the sentence indicates. Uh, let's keep going here. The reader and the listeners who, to the sayings of this prophecy are privileged, also those who heed the things written in it, because the season is impending. And letter E, the sense is that the sense is that the end times events are threatening or imminent, but not necessarily immediate. The whole series of events could come at any time. So it's important to think when we're talking about the the revelation of Jesus. We're talking about the entire sequence because the lamb takes the scroll, doesn't he? The lamb takes the scroll and his judgments is judge. And that those judgments culminate with the second coming, but they begin when he starts opening those seals. And it's the lamb who opens the seals. 